Good evening. My name is Hannah Tubb, and the scripture reading tonight is from Mark 8, 1 through 10. That can be found in your pew Bible on page 843. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with the bread we have in this desolate place? And he answered them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set before them, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about four thousand people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmethua. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, friends, and a warm welcome again to our church. My name is James Forsyth. I'm the senior pastor here, and I just love ending my Sundays worshiping with you all. It does, it does my soul good. It does me good to be in church, right? Uh, and I hope it's doing you good, good as well. I hope you'll leave tonight knowing that it was, it was good for you to, to have been here. Tonight, we're continuing in our series, our Advent series, Thinking About the Kingdom of God. Last week, we were encouraging each other to connect the dots from what we say we believe to how we actually live. That Christianity, the gospel, isn't just a matter of words and ideas, it's about power and action, that our faith, the things we say we believe, should have an impact upon the lives that we concretely live. If you're new to Christianity and Christians drive you crazy because they seem like a bunch of hypocrites, know that the Bible does not endorse such a life. The Bible calls us to live in a way that is consistent with the things that we believe. Tonight, we're going to develop those thoughts by considering that obedience to God, joyful obedience to God, goes hand in hand with dependence upon God. Obedience to God goes hand in hand with dependence upon God. In other words, obedience in the Christian walk isn't a matter of like white knuckling and gearing ourselves up and making sure that we don't screw this thing up. Working really hard to make sure that we don't, you know, mess up God's kingdom plan. No, obedience is an invitation to rest to rest in the Lord and the work that he is doing by his power in this world to participate in his kingdom work. We're going to consider these ideas together, but first, let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we are thankful for this opportunity to be together tonight. And in many ways, Lord, the words that we sung earlier, come and see what God has done. Ah, Lord, that's our, that's our prayer for, for these few moments now, that you would take us kindly by the hand and show us all that you have done on our behalf. For us in our um, struggles, for us even in our sins, you have done marvelous things. 
and we're grateful. So show us, Lord, your love and how it changes our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 8, four observations on this passage. The final one we'll dwell on the most. But let's work our way into this passage with our first observation, verses 1 through 3, where we see point one, that Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies. I I was going to say that Jesus provides, but then I looked at verse 8, and the word that Jesus uses is satisfies. Everyone left satisfied. We said last week, and we've said already again tonight, that the kingdom of God, the work that God is doing in our world, isn't just a matter of of words and ideas and and concepts, but a matter of power and, and action. So when Jesus was asked, hey, are you the one that's bringing the kingdom of God? Do you remember how he answered? He said, hey, go and, say, go and tell what, what you've seen. And what you've seen is that blind people are having their sight restored. And that the deaf now hear and the lame now walk and that lepers are being cleansed, even that the dead are being raised and that the, the gospel is being preached to the poor. In other words, you know the kingdom of God is here because of all the stuff that's actually happening in a concrete, tangible way in this world. The kingdom is about power and action, and so it is here. Jesus concretely comes and satisfies. Look at verse 1. A great crowd has gathered, and we read that they have nothing to eat. I love this about Jesus, that people um, are so drawn to Jesus, and he's so magnetic, and he's so compelling, that when he begins to teach, uh, you stay for so long that you forget to eat. They've been following him around all this time. Now they're listening to him, him teach, and all other concerns have, have gone to, to the wayside, uh, to, the, to the point that they haven't even eaten. Now, guys, I, all for such spiritual hunger, right? I mean, sometimes I'll cut this service short because I'm ready to go to Chipotle, you know? Uh, like, what, what an amazing thing that, that they were so sort of engrossed in what it was Jesus had to say that everything else fell to one side. But Jesus is concerned about their hunger. Look at verse 2. He says, I have compassion on the crowd. It's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? That Jesus looks out on people and what he says is, I have compassion. This is actually the only place in the Gospels where Jesus himself says, I have compassion. He's often described as having compassion. Other people describe him as having compassion. But this is the only place where he says, I have compassion. Now, why would he have compassion for hungry people? Because he knows what it's like to be hungry. Jesus is the one who, who fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He understood hunger in a way I'm guessing none of us have ever really understood hunger. But not just in his fasting. You know, it's not like Jesus, when he wasn't fasting, lived this kind of lavish, opulent lifestyle. No, when he wasn't fasting, he was, he's on the road. He's an itinerant preacher. He's moving from one place to the next, uh, positioned from you know, struggle to, to hardship, scraping things together in order to make it through. He was a man who often went to bed hungry. He knows what it's like to be hungry, and so he has compassion on the crowd. He's worried about them, and so he says, you see, verse 3, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on their way. Some of them we read have even traveled long distances to see Jesus. Um, Jesus, has he not just taught them to pray for daily bread? And now he's about to provide it for them. He has compassion on them. He cares about their needs. And so indeed he feeds them and they ate and they were satisfied. Now friends, as I was studying this passage this week, it just, this, this just did me good. It did me good to remember that when Jesus looks on you in all your needs 
and all your brokenness and even in all your sin, his response is to have compassion. It's not to be frustrated. It's not to furrow his brow. It's not to kind of give you that now it's time to do better speech. It's to have compassion. Jesus looks out on his own and he cares about us. He looks out tonight and he sees you with your particular struggles, your particular needs, and his response is to have compassion. And his plan is to satisfy those needs. Let's talk more about this by moving to our second point. First point, Jesus satisfies. Second observation, not only does Jesus satisfy, but Jesus satisfies everyone. Jesus satisfies everyone, and our passage really draws attention to this in two particular ways. First, through the geography of the text, and then secondly, through the structure of it. Like, look, look at these with me. First of all, geography. Do you remember that this isn't the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has fed a bunch of people? You know, you might be thinking, oh, the feeding of the 4,000, I thought it was 5,000. Well, yeah, he did also feed 5,000 people. And that's a different time, a different event, a different story. This is a thing that Jesus has done before. Back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000. He did that in northern Galilee, which was a Jewish region, a, a, an Israelite region, a, a religious region, a, a region that was home to the people that were considered to be God's God's own people. Now, though, in Mark chapter 8, we have a second event where he doesn't feed 5,000, he feeds 4,000. And he's no longer in Galilee, this Jewish region. We read that he's in Decapolis. If you look at verse 31 of chapter 7, you see that Jesus is in Decapolis. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, we read, in those days, so in those days that he was still in the Decapolis, Jesus does this miracle. Decapolis is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and it is a Gentile region. It's not a Jewish region, it's a Gentile region. What does that mean? It means it's not a religious region, it's an irreligious region. It's not home to the people of God, it's actually home to the enemies of God. The specific region was the region where the descendants of Canaan lived. Israel's enemies lived in this part of the world, and Jesus now shows up to feed them. Yes, he's fed the Jews, but now he's coming to feed the Gentiles, the religious and the irreligious, those who are God's people and those who aren't considered to be God's people. A little kind of interesting detail in our text, back when he feeds uh, the 5,000 Jews, we read that they collect 12 baskets of crumbs. Some commentators say, well, yeah, this represents how there is, there is bread for the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, as he feeds the Gentiles here in chapter 8, they collect seven baskets of crumbs, and some commentators say that represents the seven Gentile nations, the Hittites and Girgashites and Amorites and Canaanites and Perizzites and Hittites and Jebusites. Um, here's what I'd say. I'd say, first of all, just be cautious when um, people make a lot about the numbers in the Bible. Numbers are important in the Bible, but normally, see when you hear a preacher making a big deal out of the numbers in the Bible, they nearly always conclude that the world is about to end, and paradoxically, that you should send them a check, right? And I'm like, I don't see why I need to if the world's about to end, right? But that's normally like way too much is made of, of these things. But whether that, whatever's going on with the details of the numbers in these texts, interesting as they may be, the main point is clear. Jesus is here to feed everyone. First the Jew, then the Gentile. This idea uh, highlighted in the geography is then cemented in, in the structure. 
Notice how Mark tells of of this miracle after chapter 7, where in verses 24 through 30, again, look down at your Bible, see Mark places the feeding of the 4,000 right after Jesus' interaction with the Syrophoenician woman. Now, his interaction with the Syrophoenician woman, it's one of my favorite passages in, in all of the Bible. She's Syrophoenician. This means she is one of the the Gentile people we were talking about. She is one of the irreligious people. She is one of those people who'd be considered to be an enemy of of God. And yet she comes to Jesus in great need because she has a wee girl and her wee girl is possessed by a demon. And she asks Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus gives this really weird response. He says to her, "It's, it's not right for the dogs to eat the crumbs that fall from, from the children's table. He's uh, like saying, yeah, it's not right for those who are on the outside to receive the benefits that belong to those who are on the inside. You think, Jesus, what? Like, this doesn't sound like you. What are, what are you doing? Well, what he's doing is he's, he's prodding her. He's poking her. He's challenging her to think through her situation and to come back at him. And indeed, she does come back at him rightly when she says, yeah, but even, even the dogs do get to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus commends her faith, and he heals her daughter, and she, she, she goes away well. And now we have this beautiful telling of this story where Jesus comes and he says, hey, for the Gentiles, I'm going to give you more than crumbs. You're not just going to get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I'm going to give you bread. And you're going to eat of this bread until verse 8, you are satisfied. You're going to eat until you've had enough. It's Thanksgiving. You're going to eat till you're going to say no more. And then we're going to collect baskets afterwards. My provision of grace for you is not stingy. You're not going to rely on crumbs alone. My grace is for you. It is for everyone. Jesus feeds everyone. He feeds Jews. He feeds Gentiles. Application of this for us, just remember, the kingdom of God is not confined to any one earthly kingdom. The kingdom of God is is not confined to any one nation. Our identity as as Christians is transnational. It's global. Now, we need to remember this because this is really good news for us. You know, there's this funny tendency when you read the Bible to assume that you're one of the insiders, right? But if if the gospel isn't for the nations, then it's not for us because we ain't in Israel. We ain't in Northern Galilee, Right? The vast majority of us are here tonight are, are not Jews. We're not part of the historic people of God. And so if the gospel isn't for the nations, then it's not for me and, and it's, not, it's not for you. But not only do we celebrate the, the global reach of Christianity because it means it's for us, but we also allow that to, to start to shape and change and um, work into the way we think about other nations. It is good and it's right to be patriotic, but we remember that our citizenship is first in heaven, belongs first to the kingdom of God. And so that changes our approach to people from other places, other lands, other nations than our own. We could say more on that, but we don't have time tonight. Point one, Jesus satisfies. Point two, Jesus satisfies everyone. Point three, Jesus satisfies everyone forever. Jesus satisfies everyone forever. Look at verse six. As you look at it, let's first think for a second. Um, have you ever thought it's weird that like lots of the miracles don't last? What, what do I mean by that? I mean, 
You know, Jesus like gives sight to someone, but presumably in time their sight faded again. Or Jesus enabled, you know, a lame person to walk, but presumably in time they got old and, and slow again. Or uncontroversially, uh, Jesus raised someone from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And then what happened to Lazarus? He died again. So Jesus feeds people here, and then what happens? Well, they get hungry again. You kind of think, what's, what's that about? What's, isn't it strange that the miracles don't last? And we say, yeah, it is strange, but we need to understand the point of the miracles. See, miracles aren't just really cool, like, party tricks. Miracles are always designed to point us toward a greater kingdom reality. Miracles are in themselves illustrations. So think about it. We've been thinking of the kingdom of God along this idea of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. What the miracles do is show us what life in, in, in God's restored kingdom will be like. Where the blind will see and the deaf will hear and the lame will walk and the dead, the dead will rise. But the ultimate fulfillment of those things, the ultimate experience of those realities won't be ours until Christ returns and his kingdom comes in its fullness here on earth. In other words, the miracles aren't just like cool party tricks, right? Jesus doesn't do them just to be like, oh, get this, you know, my, for my next act, out of his sleeves, he pulls like a million bits of bread, right? That's not, it's not just like, I mean, it is cool. And it is amazing, but that's not the point. The point is to drive our attention toward a greater kingdom reality. And so it is here. Again, look at verse 6. Jesus directs the crowd to sit on the ground. Now pay, pay attention to the verbs. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. He takes, he blesses, he breaks. He gives, taking, blessing, breaking, giving. Do those verbs ring a bell? If you've been around the church, they might. They might drive your attention forward a little bit to Matthew chapter 14, where Jesus meets with his disciples the, the night before his, his, his death. The night of his betrayal, he meets with his disciples and he institutes the Last Supper. He institutes this meal of communion. And we read that, that he did what? That he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. For Christians, taking, blessing, breaking, and giving are the verbs of salvation. That point us not toward the physical bread that will satisfy the hunger of the 4,000 for, for a while, but toward the body of Christ that will satisfy the deep spiritual hunger of sinners for eternity. The point of this miracle isn't for us to focus on the bread, to focus on the lunch that came to that people that day, but to drive our attention forward to the bread of heaven, to the bread of life to the only one who can really satisfy the hunger of our souls. And if we eat of him, we never go hungry again. We never go hungry again. Jesus offers himself to hungry people tonight, offers himself for us to come taste on him by faith, to, to take him into our own souls, as it were, to believe in him and find that all of our needs are satisfied in the deepest of ways. Third point, Jesus satisfies everyone forever. 
But here's the fourth point, and the one I want to spend a few more minutes on together tonight. It's great Jesus satisfies. It's great that he satisfies everyone. It's great that he satisfies everyone forevermore. But point four, notice how Jesus does all this work through his disciples. Jesus does this work of satisfaction for everyone forever. He does it through his disciples. So on one hand, look at verse 4. On one hand, the disciples are great because they clearly, like, don't understand what's happening. I love, there's a great Scottish word. It's the word glacet, right? Uh, glacet means to be completely oblivious. For things to just go so far over your head, you don't even realize anything's gone over your head, right? Um, and, and the disciples, look at verse 4. This is Glacet. How can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Why is that question so great? Because, hey guys, do you remember what happened two chapters ago? Do you remember back in chapter 6? A couple pages. When you were standing around saying, well, how are we going to feed all these people in this desolate place? And then, boom, Jesus, bread everywhere right? Well, like 20 minutes later, two chapters later, here they are. Oh, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed these people? Right? And you're like, guys, I actually find that really encouraging. Why? Because like how quick we are to forget, (laughs) how quick we are to forget the power of God, even when he has proved it time and time again. Well, we're not the first to do this. On one hand, they're glacid, but look, on the other hand, they obey him. Look at how they obey Jesus. Verse five, Jesus finds out what he has to work with. The disciples have seven loaves. Verse 7 tells us they also have a few small fish. Then in verse 6, the disciples place the little bread that they have into the Savior's hands. Now, we don't exactly know how how the miracle happened. Don't don't you like to think about these things? Like, there's seven loaves and then 4,000 people have bread. So, like, what are the logistics of that? You know, how does that... How does that come about? Was it like one big, like, you know, abracadabra, you know, and then just like a big pile of bread? Or like, like the, the truth is we don't really know, but the grammar of the text suggests that the miracle happens under Jesus' hands. Why? Because the word for forgave to his disciples, that, that verb is construed in a way that means that he, he kept on giving to his disciples. So he took the bread and he blessed it and, and he broke it and then he kept on giving it to the disciples. It's almost like the idea that they place these loaves in his hands and then something happens under his hands that he can just keep on giving it and keep on giving it and keep on giving it as they do what? While well, we read, as they distribute it to, to the people. Here's the point. However exactly it happened, here's the point. There is no doubt. There is no doubt that all the power belongs to Jesus But it pleases him to involve the disciples in this work. It pleases him. They put bread in his hands. They distribute it from his hands. He uses their stumbling obedience to establish his kingdom here on earth. Jesus loves to work through his disciples. And we know, don't we know, that this principle is still at work? That yes, Jesus is on the move, and the kingdom is on the move, and it will advance, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and the power for all of that is his. And yet, he has decided to bring it about by, by using his disciples, through us, his, his disciples. The connection here, the connection between our obeying him and our seeing the kingdom advance, didn't really, um, 
cement in my mind until I taught my daughter how to ride a bike. Okay? Uh, four kids, I was teaching the youngest of them to ride a bike. She was wee at the time. And uh, she kind of got that past that phase of just going around the neighborhood, and she had the stabilizers off, so we're beginning to be able to go a little further. And so we used to go on these, like, run bikes, which means I would, I would run, I would go for a run, and she would, like, bike along with me, right? Which was great, especially on the flat. We went about the same speed, and that was nice. We would talk. Um, downhill was terrifying because she would, like, shoot off into the distance, and I'd be preparing the, you know, like, how do you explain to your wife that you've lost your daughter speech? You know, um, I've, I've had to do it with a son, haven't had to do it with a daughter, so I was kind of having to prepare this in speech, speech in my mind. But then, you know, if sure enough, I'd, I'd catch up with her and be fine. But on the uphills, um, we, we had a problem. Why? Because she was wee and she got tired. And so there was this one particular hill beside our house that she just, <laughs> try as she might, and she's feisty, right? But try as she might, she just couldn't get to the top. She'd cycle, pedal, 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 little legs going furiously, and as she would go, 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 she'd get slower, 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 and then you know on a bike, like, the slower you go, the harder it is to balance, so she gets slower, she gets more wobbly, and then suddenly, like, right? Um, And this would happen consistently. Well, one day, I'm running along, see her begin the hill, and I sneak up behind her, and I put my hand on the saddle, right? And I say, pedal, pedal! You got this. And then she pedals, and I push her up the hill. Right? I push her up the hill. Uh, she's pedaling furiously. I'm, like, about to have a heart attack. Um, but on we go up to the top of the hill. And see, when we get to the top of the hill, she turns to me, and she says, Dad, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, you did. Huh? <laughs> yeah, you did. This is how the kingdom of God works. This is how the kingdom of God works. He calls us to come and he calls us to pedal, right? We stumble into his presence, glake it as we are. We put a little bread in his hand and then something happens under his hands. A miracle of grace where the result is the kingdom advances. Our efforts don't bring it about and yet he's pleased to use our efforts to bring his kingdom about. And friends, we see this happen. We see this. Let me tell you another Cuba story. I know I told you a Cuba story last week, but our team just came back from Cuba a couple of weeks ago, and I'm excited about it. Um, one of our team members told the story of going out to about a couple hours outside of Havana, meeting with this old couple in their 80s, and the husband was suffering uh, near death with, with cancer. And living a couple hours outside of Havana, Havana is the only place you can get really good medical care. The, the goal with him was really just to like, make him as comfortable as he could until he died. But that, that, wasn't, that wasn't going all that well. Uh, he was in a lot of pain. And he wasn't sleeping at night, waking up regularly with you know, just pain and discomfort and, and just, just struggling. Well, all this while, his wife is a Christian. His wife's a believer. And she's been praying for her husband uh, that she, he would come to know Jesus. And of course, she's spoken to him about this too, but you know how sometimes family dynamics are weird and squirrely? Like, they can't have that conversation anymore, right? They've had that conversation many times, and, and she's just not the one to bring that message anymore. And so she's just praying that somehow something will happen, that he'll come to know Christ before he dies. Well, one night, the pain for him is so bad that he, um, he makes a bargain with God. You ever made a bargain with God? 
He says, God, I don't, really, I don't really know if you exist, but here's the deal. If you let me sleep through the night tonight, then, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll accede to my, wife, my wife's wishes, and I'll, I'll listen, I'll, I'll hear about Jesus, right? Which isn't that like, that's a super tentative deal. <laughs> like, if you come through, I'll maybe kind of sort of think about it, right? <laughs> um, guess what happens? Four nights straight, dude sleeps <laughs> not like a baby. Sleeping like a baby is waking up crying all the time, okay? No one who has a baby ever thinks that sleeping like a baby is a good thing. No, that's how he was sleeping before this, right? Now he has four nights in a row where he sleeps like the deep soul rest, okay? He, he just, for, for the first time in years, he sleeps straight through the night, four nights in a row, and guess what happens on the fifth day? Our team member, member of our church, shows up at his house to talk about Jesus, He's in a position where he's like, well, I'm kind of out of options, right? I kind of have to listen to this, to this guy. Well, our member shares the gospel with him. And as the privilege before this man dies of seeing him pray to receive Christ. Now, here's what I love about this story. If you're Jesus, right, what have you got to work with here? Well, you've got this kind of stumbling obedience of a like, member from McLean. Um, and then you've got, oh, I can preach a whole sermon on this, you've got the um, stubborn bargain of a sinful old man. And don't you love it? Don't you love that Jesus took this stubborn, sinful bargain as, and, and interpreted it as an opportunity to show grace? You know, like Jesus could clearly be in heaven. Like, like who, do, who do you think you are to be coming and trying to like make a deal with me? Like, I don't think you understand how this works. I wasn't sitting here hoping that you would give me this great opportunity, man. Right? I, I, I wasn't waiting for this, for this, this bargain. I don't, I don't need to enter into deals with you, but that's not how Jesus looks on us. Jesus looks on us with compassion, and so he sees this as an opportunity for this man to receive grace. And what does he do? He takes the stumbling obedience of this like dude from MPC and the sinful bargain of this stubborn old man, and then something happens under his hands, and I don't really understand it, but the result is that this man's saved for all eternity. Simple obedience <laughs> results in amazing kingdom fruit. And you know, it's not just in big dramatic ways. It's not just like mission story fields, <laughs> mission field stories. Um, this week we had, uh, <laughs> we had the joy, and it really was a joy, of Judy Niemeyer's funeral here at our church. Judy Niemeyer, for those of you who didn't have the opportunity to meet her, was a founding member of our church and she died within the last few weeks at uh, 101 years old. She was still mowing her own yard well into her 80s. Her kids tried to get her to stop mowing her own yard because she was in her 80s, right? And she said, hey, just know that if I die, I'll die happy, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I was really struck as a... First of all, this is the joy of that day. It was just a really good reminder. You know, it's, it's possible to live and it's possible to die well. And for everyone to celebrate. What a great thing. What a great way to go. What an aspirational thing to, to have before us. But I was also really struck by, by the stories that were told, not just in the service itself, but in the conversations around that, around that time. Because people spoke about how amazing, amazing Judy was, but what was interesting was that they described a bunch of actually really normal things. They described how Judy... Um, 
She was the person that welcomed all the new people at church. Right. They described how she would have people over for meals in her home. They described how faithful she was to teach kids Sunday school. They described how she would teach people um, how to sew and how to, how to mow the yard. Right. Uh, they just described a bunch of things that are, are actually kind of normal. And then they spoke about these, the impact of these things in a way that was anything but normal. How through these normal things, people came to Christ. How through these normal things, uh, lonely people were given hope. How through these normal things, grieving widows found new life. How God took what's actually ordinary, mundane, not super impressive, crazy, unattainable obedience, just normal stuff of life, and then he did something with it. And I don't really understand what, it, what happened, but somehow under his hands resulted miracles of grace. This is how the kingdom works. This is, this is, this is how the kingdom works. Jesus is pleased to bring about his kingdom through his disciples, through his people. And so he takes our stumbling obedience and he does something that we don't quite understand and kingdom fruit is the result. And so the call and the challenge is for us to question like, where, where do we need to hear this tonight? Where do we need to start to live in obedience to God that we might live in dependence upon God? Where is he calling us to obey him that he might under his hands produce miraculous kingdom fruit? Maybe you have a friend, a roommate, a family member that you know you need to apologize to, but you haven't apologized to them because you're really not sure how they'll react. And we say, hey, listen, do the next healthy thing. Be obedient and let's see what Jesus does. Maybe there's an invite you need to extend to a colleague to come to your home, to a friend or a loved one to join our church, but you've been reluctant to extend it because you, you're really not sure how they'll respond. Just do the next healthy thing. Do the ne- Stumble into that obedience and let's just see what happens under Jesus' hands. Maybe it's something else. Maybe there's a, a discipline of generosity or purity or devotional life, something you feel that you've, can't, you've not started because you don't think you'll stick with it. And Jesus is saying, hey, do the next healthy thing. Obey me. Let's see what happens under my hands. It's so good to me that the call to kingdom obedience, the call to advance the kingdom, is not a call to come up with some cunning master plan that is going to dominate the world for Jesus. What a crushing weight that would be. The call to obedience is the call to dependence. It's the call to rest. It's the invitation to come, put our bread in his hands, and just wait and see what he'll do next. Psalm 37, verse 5, one of my favorite verses, and probably sums up this, this sermon well. It says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Commit your way to the Lord, obey him, and trust in him, rest, and he will act. Let's see what he does next. We do the next healthy thing. We watch to see what God will do. Friends, (laughs) the mountain seems at times unscalable, and yet through the power of Christ, we'll make it to the top. The kingdom will advance. And do you know what we'll say when it happens? 
will say, Dad, we did it. <laughs> and he'll say, yeah, you did. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time together in your words. And Lord, I'm, I'm in need of the grace that you offer to satisfy everyone forever. Outsiders, with all our failings and brokenness, our hypocrisy and sin, you look upon us and you have compassion. And Father, we need that. We, we need that. We need you to look upon us and not give us what we deserve, but instead to feed us grace, the bread of life that can satisfy forever. And after doing that, Lord, you, you continue to give grace because you give us this amazing invitation to participate in your kingdom work, that you're doing your work here on earth and that you're pleased to do it through us. And so, Lord, help us to be a part of this in dramatic ways or, or quiet ways. Would we give our obedience to you that we might live in dependence on you and see your kingdom come here on earth? We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.